16, 24 through 27. Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever who would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Reading of his word. Pray. Lord, what a stunning, high calling this is. As Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Not just come and sit on a padded pew, not just come and be comfortable, but to come as Christ came in his likeness seeking to imitate him, seeking to magnify him, seeking to show the world what he is like. And not by only our enjoyment of the benefits of Christianity, but through the sacrifices of service. And so we praise you. And we pray, Father, that you would use this time and your word and this witness that I will present today to provoke and inspire within us a holy passion for the Lord Jesus Christ and a willingness to go wherever you send and to do whatever you call us to do for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of Christ and for our own everlasting joy. Lord, these things we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. A number of years ago, I started a, a personal discipline that has borne much fruit in my life, and that discipline is reading Christian biography. And all the way back when I was the associate pastor long, long ago here at Calvary Bible Church, I preached my first couple of messages at about this time of year. Usually it's in January, but since I'm not going to be here the first two Sundays of January, we decided to move it to this week. And I... I I want to spend one week a year presenting to you a godly man who is known in redemptive history, who is one who has prosecuted his assignment in following Christ and bringing others to Christ. He's done that faithfully amidst whatever opposition to the praise of God's glorious grace. Now, there is biblical precedent for this, and I would say there's biblical precedent for having extra-biblical heroes, people that you see and that you get to know, spiritual people in your life, and you watch them live or you hear about them, and most of the really good ones are dead, so you have to read about them, but to find these men and women who knew that they, were sur they themselves were surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And so they ran their race with endurance. They made specific decisions in life that brought glory to God and sanctification to themselves. 
And the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. In other words, find those men, find those women who are more godly than yourself. Watch their lives. Learn from them how to bring God's word to bear on your life. The author of Hebrews says, Remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Who are they? Most of them will never know. Most of them are not recorded in Scripture. But there are faithful men whose lives are worthy of emulation. One of my favorites is a man by the name of David Brainerd. Now, last week I told you we're going to do Jim Elliott. Why in the world I thought I could pull that off during Christmas week, I'll never know. But I've kept David Brainerd in my back pocket, so to speak, in case I I needed him, and this week I needed him. And I tell you, just flipping through uh, the life and and diary of David Brainerd uh, just so affected my soul this week, and I'm so convicted again by the life of this man and the call of God from his word to be like men who are like this. In fact, I would say if you're a young man or even a young woman, but especially you young men, you're trying to figure out what it means to be a godly young man, read this. Read this. It's not the Bible. Don't elevate anyone higher than he ought to be. But be willing to learn. Be willing to grow. And be willing to watch other people who do better at Christianity than you do. And you will grow and you will learn. The record of the life of David Brainerd has been instrumental in inspiring many great men of faith through uh, kind of into missionary service and all kinds of service to the glory of God throughout these last 260 or 70 years. And though he is now with the Lord and has been for centuries, his life and ministry have affected me deeply. In fact, of all of the biographies that I have read, this one is the one I cherish the most. And frankly, that's been the case in church history. Um, It used to be back in the 16 or the 17, sorry, late 1700s, early 1800s, if, uh, if you didn't have a lot of money and you wanted to grow in the Lord, you probably possessed three books. Number one, you had a Bible. Number two, you had Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And number three, if you could afford a third book, it was Brainerd, Brainerd's Life and Diary, which was compiled by Jonathan Edwards and has never been out of print since 1746, I think the year is, when it was released. How many books can you attribute that to? uh, uh, Brainerd became known... All over the English-speaking world is a man that God used to ignite the great awakening among the Indians. Now, let me just have a raise of hand. How many of you know about the life of David Brainerd? Yeah, some. Good, more than I thought. How many of you know anything about the awakening among the American Indians? Even fewer um, than you're in for a treat. If you read this, you're in for a treat, and I hope to whet your appetite with it this morning. But not only that, that's not my primary goal. My primary goal is to see a life of a man who loved Christ even in the face of death. 
Do you love him with one holy passion? His greatest desire was to know Christ and make him known. And so the title of this message is, My Heaven is to Please God. And that's what we'll see David Brainerd said. Well, let me give you some, just a short biography of his life and then some things to learn from his life. Brainerd was born in the town of Haddam, Connecticut, April 20th, 1718, 58 years before the Declaration of Independence, to give you a point of reference. Brainerd was one of nine children in his household, the third of five sons and four daughters, born to his parents, Hezekiah and Dorothy Brainerd. We know very little about his childhood, except that at the age of 13, he became very aware of his own sin. And... Uh, that did not necessarily propel him to the cross. That propelled him the opposite direction toward legalism. And he became a very smug religious person. In 1737, when he was 19 years old, his father died and left him a farm as his inheritance. He decided he was going to leave where he was living and go take possession of his farm and become a farmer and farm the land, read books. That's what he wanted to do. And uh, he started farming, and I don't know, a week or two into it, he said, this is not the life for me, and decided he was going to instead follow the example of his brother and go into the ministry. He was still lost, as many men back in that day were who were pursuing ministry. So why do you pursue ministry? Well, in that day, if you really wanted a good, solid, stable living, you did one of three things. You either pursued law, medicine, or the ministry. And he chose the ministry. And so um, he went into school, he went into Yale College with this idea that he would become a pastor. But his, his mentality was very legalistic. He writes in his journal, I became very strict and watchful over my thoughts, words, and actions. I thought I must be sober indeed because I designed to devote myself to the ministry and imagined I had dedicated myself to the Lord. And he had not. Like John Wesley before him and his brother, Charles, who came to America from England to be missionaries here and preaching what they thought was the gospel, they didn't even know Christ. David joined his brother at Yale and applied himself diligently to his studies. He became very smug in his religious disciplines. He was a very bright young man, and so that was easy. And he complained about the religious carelessness of other people. He imagined that his own dedication and sober behavior qualified him very favorably, both before men and before God. I mean, if there was anybody who was like the Apostle Paul in terms of attitude, it was David Brainerd. But all that was to change one Sunday morning after the Sunday service. Lord's Day, um, I don't have a date here, but 1738, sometime in the beginning of winter, he writes, it pleased God on one Sabbath morning as I was walking out from some secret duties. That means he was probably reading his Bible and praying. Some secret duties to give me on a sudden such a sense of my danger and the wrath of God that I stood amazed and my former good frames that I pleased myself with all presently vanished. From the view I had of my sin and vileness, I was much distressed all that day fearing the vengeance of God would soon overtake me. 
And so now he not only saw his sin, he saw the consequences of this sin. And I think it's safe to say that he realized that there was a righteousness that he desperately needed, didn't have, and couldn't earn. More than that, uh, you know, everybody back then uh, in, in, in that part of the country and, and certainly Christianity around the world for the most part, uh, they were reformed in their theology. They believed in the doctrines of grace, grace alone, faith alone, not of works alone. Um, Brainerd hated those doctrines. He was very familiar with them. But he hated the idea that your only hope was not your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. That your only hope was the blood and righteousness of Jesus. He hated the fact that, that God condemned men for their sin and left them, in his mind, with no hope whatsoever. He felt trapped. He hated these things. And he thought that maybe he could be righteous enough that God would accept him. Now, I don't know all of your testimonies. I know a lot of them because the elders get to sit down with you through the membership process and hear your testimonies. And, and this is so common in testimonies. Heard two more this morning from membership. They're beautiful, wonderful to hear. Frank Shannon said, this is one of our, it's probably the, the, the best part of being an elder is we get this unique privilege of sitting down with every person who comes from membership and hearing their testimony. And I say amen to that. It's a glorious thing. But here's what we hear again and again in those salvation testimonies that I heard the gospel a thousand times and thought I believed it. And then one day, I can't explain why, it was like, whoa, what was that? I've never heard this before. Yes, I have, but I never understood it this way. And they start opening their Bible and realizing it's life to them. Things have changed. The old heart is gone. The new heart has come. And this is what happened to Brainerd as well. In his journal, let me just read a, a little section here from him. He says this, At this time, the way of salvation opened to me with such infinite wisdom, suitableness, and excellency that I wondered I should ever think of any other way of salvation. Was amazed that I had not dropped my own contrivances and complied with this lovely, blessed, and excellent way before. If I could have been saved by my own duties or any other way that I had formerly contrived, my whole soul would now have refused it. I wondered that all the world did not see and comply with this way of salvation entirely by the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. And until the Holy Spirit quickens that in your heart so that you, in your heart, in your mind, say, wow, that's amazing. I believe. Lord Jesus, I believe. That's your only hope. That's your only hope. Well, from that day on, God, God's honor and glory were David's chief end in life. However, he, um, he was young and youthful, and still had a propensity to be somewhat self-righteous and smug. He continued in his studies at Yale College for two more years, during which time the Great Awakening slept, swept through the colonies. How many of you know about the Great Awakening? Good. If you don't, you need to start coming to Sunday school, especially to listen to Matt Scheffler teach on church history. 
Um, Great Awakening was an amazing move of the Spirit of God. It had a lot of excesses, a lot of weird things happened back then, but many people came to Christ. Um, George Whitfield was a part of that. Jonathan Edwards was a part of that. And this was the time that it was happening. And so it was as if the Spirit was sweeping through New England and people were getting saved all over the place and it created its own kind of atmosphere and culture in that place. But not everybody was happy. The rector and the administration and the faculty of Yale College, which was formed, as all the Ivy League colleges were, to train young men for ministry. Nevertheless, these guys were not happy about what they called the enthusiasm. They didn't like the Great Awakening. And some of them kind of decried it publicly. And that was a problem because there were many students, including Brainerd himself, who were favorable to what was happening in the, uh, in the, in the Great Awakening. Um, and so here's what happened. Um, after, uh, after all of this started affecting the school, the administration realized that there was going to be a problem. If the students kept looking down their noses at the faculty and the staff and the administration, there was going to be serious conflict. And there was going to be a rift in the school, you can imagine. And so they sent out an edict, a a stern resolution that said, if any student of this college shall directly or indirectly say that the rector, either of the trustees or tutors, that's the teachers, are spiritual hypocrites, carnal, or unconverted men... He shall for the first offense make public confession in the hall and for the second offense be expelled. They were not going to tolerate anybody insulting the leadership of the school. And you can understand that. But here's what happened. In a very short time, David Brainerd ran up against this edict. And Jonathan Edwards tells the story and he says this. It once happened that he, that is Brainerd, and two or three more of his intimate friends were in the college hall after, together after Mr. Whittlesley, one of the teachers, had been praying there with the students. No other person now remaining in the hall but Brainerd and his companions, Mr. Whittlesley, having been unusually animated in his prayers, one of Brainerd's friends on this occasion asked him what he thought of Mr. Whittlesley. And David answered, he has no more grace than a chair which in case you don't understand that, that was an insult. He's about as spiritual as a church pew, as a a plowman's milking stool. Um, Well, one of the freshmen of the school, happening at that time to be near the hall, though not in the room, I suspect outside the door or outside of a window, overheard those words, and apparently reported them to someone who reported them to the administration. David soon was called to give an account of what he had said, and though he protested that it had been a private conversation, it wasn't anyone else's business, he wasn't trying to make any trouble, he was just giving his opinion in a private conversation. Nevertheless, he was commanded to confess this as sin before the whole student body. And he refused. He felt like he was being dealt with unfairly. And so they expelled him permanently. 
And it's, and it's really a sad story because um, this was a bright, bright young man. And he'd come to know the Lord, and, and, and you think, wow, if he, had gone to, if he had been able to finish college, what could he have done? <laughs> Here's the thing. If he hadn't been expelled from college, we would have never known what he'd done. This was the providence of God. And he fought it. Even Jonathan Edwards got on board with him. How would you like to have Jonathan Edwards on your side? You'd think, there's no way we can lose. And yet the board turned him down, refused again and again and again. I mean, God was just determined to keep that young man from ever getting his degree. And so what happened? Well, this was an extreme blow for him being cut off from his ultimate hopes of academic honors. It was severe. He soon recovered from the initial shock and then turned his heart toward ministering the gospel to the American Indians. And he was then commissioned by an organization who, the organizations back then were not known for their short, pithy um, names. Like like in in our country, I mean, when we refer to Calvary, we refer to it as CBC. A lot of organizations are just getting it down to something they can put on an app on your cell phone, right? Back then, they came up with names like this. The Society in Scotland for the Propagation of Christian Knowledge to the Heathen in America. (laughs) How do you abbreviate that? Well, he was accepted, even though he didn't have a degree. And his unbelievably difficult task of taking the gospel into the dense woodlands of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Now, how many of you grew up in Texas? You don't have any clue what he's talking about here. Dense woodlands? I mean, maybe East Texas, maybe. But I tell you, there's nothing like New England if you want to see dense woods. He will refer to it as uh, the, the um, I forget the term he uses, but the wilderness, this, not wilderness like desert like we think of, but this awful place where you're going to get entangled by every weeds. I grew up there. I grew up in New Jersey. Somehow, in the mystery of God's providence, after I finished reading this and devouring everything I could on his life back in 1999, um, I was getting ready to, to talk about it. And, uh, and I went and I, and I grabbed a book, happened to have a map in it, and I was showing my son. Uh, and he said, wow, Dad, that's cool. It's an ancient map or an old map. And I said, yeah, but this is the area where I grew up. Here's the Delaware River right here. At, we used to call it the armpit. That's where I grew up, right there in the corner. And he said, yeah, Dad, but where did, where did the Great Awakening happening among the Indians? And I said, I, I could never tell. I, it, from the reading, I could never put my finger on it. It was, just, it was just an Indian place. And he said, well, where's the town you grew up? And I said, well, the map must be older than my town because all we have here is this teepee. And he said, well, let's look for the place, Cross Weekson. And we found it. It was the same teepee. And I realized Cross Weekson, which we'll talk about in just a second, is today Cross Weeks. It was walking distance from my house. Um, man, I wish I could tell you more about that. But it's uh, just an amazing providence for me to see how God worked in that area that today, uh, or at least last time I was there, seemed so unreachable. Must have been more so back then. Over a a three-and-a-half-year period, David Brainerd rode horseback some 3,000 miles. He was averaging 80 to 100 miles per week on horse. His work was slow, arduous, lonely, and for the most part, unsuccessful. In the meantime, he would go back to town from time to time to, to preach. But here's the problem. 
you had to have a license to preach. And if you got caught preaching without a license, you could be arrested. And as you're reading his journal, you find again and again, he writes about the great lengths that he took to come into town at night and to go to the home of his friend in a very clandestine manner. And sometimes, fearing that the danger was too great, he would just spend the night in the woods because they were after him. They were trying to arrest him, to throw him in jail for preaching without a license. Um, His work was lonely. It was hard. The Indians were unresponsive. His translator, Moses Tatami, with whom he traveled, didn't know the Lord and therefore was of little help communicating the wonders of the gospel. I've had translators like this. You're up there, you're preaching with fire. I was in Belarus one time, and I had a female translator. And she, no kidding, she was leaning on the table, and, and she was doing this and just in a deadpan voice. And I thought, well, how will anyone catch the essence of what I'm trying to say? This is exactly what happened to Brainerd. And so he was preaching with fire, and his translator didn't believe it. And so he was communicating the truth as though he didn't believe it. Why would anybody else believe it? And so his ministry was unsuccessful. Eventually, God graciously redeemed David's interpreter and his family. They came to Christ. But uh, really, that family was the only fruit that was born, the only harvest of his difficult later labor. Uh, later on, David confessed in his report back to the society, uh, the mission society that he worked for, that he had given up pretty much all hope of reaching the Indians. He was tired. He was sick. He'd been out there for uh, the better part of three years. Uh, and yet, his name had spread. He had become like the, the legendary figure roaming the woods in Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey. And things were written about him. Parts of his journals were published. Some of his, uh, some of his writings were published. And people knew about this guy. And some of them offered him positions at, as pastor of some really prominent churches. But as he was trying to make this decision, he heard of some Indians in New Jersey, south of where he was, uh, that he had not yet tried to reach. And so he wrote in his journal pretty much, listen, I'm going to try one more group of Indians to the south. If they're unresponsive, I'm going to go take one of these big churches that's offered me a position. And so in the summer of 1745, Brainerd headed south into a wooded area in New Jersey, which the Indians called Crosswicksen, today Crosswicks. He had hoped to find uh, a tribal community there, a group of people to whom he could preach. But when he got there, all he could find were four Indians, and they were all women. And so this is what he writes in his journal. He said, I found a very few persons at the place I visited and perceived that the Indians in these parts were very scattered. However, I preached to the few that I found and Uh, who appeared very well disposed and not inclined to object as Indians had frequently done elsewhere. Well, having concluded his message, he informed them that he'd be willing to return again and teach them some more. And so the next day, they had an appointment for the next day, and he comes back, and there's not four women now, there's more. And then the next day, there were more, and the next day, more, and the men were coming, these Indian men were coming. And it wasn't long before... They were asking him to preach twice a day. And he knew God was up to something. The Spirit of God began to move mightily among these dear lost people, he said. 
And before long, many fell to tears and remorse over their own sin and inability to possess such a dear Savior as Jesus. They'd never heard anything like this before in their lives. They worshipped evil spirits. They worshipped all kinds of things. They'd never heard of a gracious God. And one by one, the Indians began surrendering to God's gracious call. An awakening among the Indians, such as had never before been witnessed, had begun. In a year's time, more than 100 Indians had come to live near Brainerd in Cross Weekson, 85 of whom David was convinced had genuinely been born again. Now, that's a significant statement, because here's what happened. In the first wave of the Great Awakening, you read reports after services... Uh, that were held that said things like 15 people were saved tonight, 10 people were saved tonight, 35 people were saved tonight. Well, and a year later, they found all these people, or, uh, the vast majority of these people had gone back to the bars, they'd gone back to their loose living, and they, they weren't born again at all. They had some kind of religious experience. So when the second wave came through, uh, you find these same men, Edwards and Whitfield and others, who wrote things like this. We have good reason to hope that the Spirit worked on many this evening. Without any, without any hint of a number. And so, what did Brainerd do? Brainerd, as you read this, you find that he very systematically interviews each Indian and tries to talk them out of it to determine whether or not they truly knew Christ. And some of them were saying, we are so resigned to this God that we would bless him even if he were to cast us into hell. We want to know him. It's amazing. And Brainerd just kind of, when you're reading it, it's, it's, it's a little bit confusing because he says, the work of the Spirit was so powerful, it's almost as if God didn't need me there. God worked apart, it seemed to me, apart from means, as if the preaching were such an insignificant part of what the Holy Spirit was doing, there was no other explanation for it. Um, it was amazing. Well, news of this great outpouring began to spread all through the colonies and across the Atlantic into Scotland and Britain. Um, Whitfield knew about it and wrote about it. Everybody was talking about what had happened through this young man. There could be no doubt that God had used a single young man, unmarried, as the means of a marvelous work of grace. Well, to get to the end of the story, eventually, due to ravaging effects of tuberculosis, David had to turn his ministry over to his brother, John, and then returning to New England. Uh, after less than four years of ministry, he was recognized by all as an unusual man of faith, in his last days, he preached a few sermons. He finished compiling his journals. He said goodbye to his family and friends. And then in the home of his dear friend, Jonathan Edwards, and at the age of 29, he died. Let's talk about what we can learn. And when I say learn about his life, I mean learn about how we see Scripture played out in his life and, and his ministry. First thing I want to talk about is David Brainerd's devotion to the pursuit of holiness in the enjoyment of Christ. The pursuit of holiness in the enjoyment of Christ. Now, as you're reading this, if there's anything you're going to be convicted on, I hope, 
it's going to be this. Because every time I pick it up, it's like, oh, Lord, I've forgotten again. Oh, Lord, I'm so convicted. I've forgotten again. The secret to holiness is pursuing joy in Christ, knowing him, worshiping him, delighting in him, praying, fellowshipping with him. We could say holiness is like farming, right? And Paul uses this illustration himself. It takes work. It takes work. And throughout redemptive history, there's always been this swinging of the pendulum from one extreme to another. On the one hand, it's, it's uh, the Methodists, right? Just get the method right. Use the appropriate means, and you'll become a godly person. That's how you go up into legalism and liberalism. On the other hand, there's this other extreme, which is becoming prominent again in our day, of just let go and let God. You don't have any responsibility. If it's going to get done, God's going to do it. And that's wrong as well. Um, It's more like farming. If you're going to get a crop, you are going to do dependent work. You're going to get out there, and you're going to plow, and you're going to sow. But who gives the increase? Paul makes this very clear. It is God. It's not Paul. It's not Apollos. It's not Cephas. God gives the growth. Now, this is different than salvation. Salvation is all of God. His work is initiating. Our work is responding. In sanctification, it's a cooperation with God. He is working and we are working. He is working and we are working. We don't, we don't buy a field and then say, God... Corn would be good there. And then come out at harvest and find corn. You're not going to find corn. You're going to find weeds, but you're not going to find corn. I think often when we observe a man like David Brainerd, we come away astounded at the greatness of his faith and the depth of his holiness that was evident in his life. And we often find ourselves wondering how people like him are able to get to the maturity that we claim to want Half the answer is that God was abundantly gracious, no doubt about that. And the other half is he worked hard at holiness. Like a farmer, in the end, the fruit of holiness was realized only after hard work, perseverance, and sweat. In order to get what he desired most, he had to deny himself many good things so that he could focus on and enjoy the greatest thing. And in the midst of all of that, God pours out grace upon grace upon grace, without which all our toil is in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain who build. Unless the Lord watches the city, you're in big trouble. And so turn with me to the book of Philippians here for just a moment. Just a couple of things, because I want you to see this And for Brainerd, again, the outstanding quality of his sanctification was that it was fueled by joy in knowing Christ. And what I want to submit to you is that this farming idea is biblical, although the passage I'm going to show you does not mention farming. And the idea of pursuing Christ as an end in himself not even as an end of my holiness, but as an end in itself. It's exactly what Paul the Apostle desired and pursued. And so we have a passage like this. Uh, We're talking about the balance here between God's work and your work. 
And so we have statements like this, the Apostle Paul, uh, Philippians 2, verse 12. So then, beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, watch this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling at your part. But it's not the end of the verse. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or it's not the end of the sentence. It is the end of the verse. Verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will, that is to give you the desire, and to work, that is the energy for his good pleasure. You work and God works. And yet underneath your work, towards sanctification, your pursuit of sanctification, needs to be this self-deprecating, John the Baptist-like mentality that says, he must increase, I must decrease. Anything I have to offer is as nothing. The only thing I, in myself, have to offer God is my sin, because all of my righteousness is but filthy rags. I want Christ. And so chapter 3, we read this. Here's Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, who had achieved so much as an unbelieving Pharisee, was on the top of the heap in terms of kind of spiritual rock stars of his day. And he now looks back after coming to know Christ and being involved in ministry and growing in Christ all these years. He looks back and says this, verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, and and notice, it's a pursuit of Christ. He's not even pursuing holiness necessarily. It is a pursuit of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but skubala in the Greek. You know what it means? It doesn't mean rubbish. It means something stinkier and smellier than that. It means dung. I count all things as loss and count them but rubbish, scubala, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And then where, you want to know where Paul's holiness came from? It wasn't in the pursuit of holiness per se. It was in the pursuit of Christ. And that's the secret to Brainerd's life. The fundamental question that I hope we'll all wrestle with this morning is this. What do you desire most in life? There's an almost unlimited number of options from which we can choose to answer this question. Paul could have chosen national prestige that was certainly within his reach. He had everything going for him to become the most powerful leader in Israel. All his credentials were falling into place. 
He was on the irreversible course toward the ultimate fulfillment of his highest dreams until he took a detour down that Damascus road. What happened? When he met Christ, there was a force more powerful than his religious zeal. There was a joy that was greater. There was a treasure more valuable than everything he had. This is how Jesus describes it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in the field which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is not coercion. This isn't, you can't have me unless you sell everything kind of mentality. This is, how much do I need to give to get Christ? Because I'm not holding back. I give it all. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that pearl. And so in the person of Jesus Christ, Paul found something infinitely more valuable than human success that he had planned for himself. And so he sold all of his lesser treasure, his name, his prestige, his respectability, his religiosity, his fame. He sold it all as if it were worth nothing. And frankly, I suspect the reason we don't pursue a holy life more rigorously than we do is because we don't realize that a thriving personal relationship with Almighty God is worth more than making more money or achieving our goals or watching yet another movie or playing another game or just sleeping in again. And Paul's passion for the church was to reveal to them the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. He wanted that passion to be ours. And it's helpful to me when I see it in a living person or when I read about it in detail in a biography that shows me what that looks like in someone else's life. I think the best extra-biblical example of this that I know is the life and diary of David Brainerd. He loved God. He wanted nothing more than to please God. Let me show you. Um, just some thoughts from his journal. Here we go. Wednesday, April 28th. I think I have not had such power of intercession these many months, both for God's children and for Dead sinners, as I have had this evening, I wished and longed for the coming of my dear Lord. I longed to join the angelic host in praises, wholly free from imperfection. Oh, the blessed moment hastens. All I want is to be more holy, more like my dear Lord. Oh, for sanctification, my very soul pants for the complete restoration of the blessed image of my Savior, that I may be fit for the blessed enjoyments and employments of the heavenly world. That's what he wanted. That's what drove him. Here's another one. He writes this. 
Oh, one hour with God infinitely exceeds all the pleasures and delights of this lower world. And that, that just makes you ask, when was the last time I spent an hour with God? How about this? Um, he says, Oh, the closest walk with God is the sweetest heaven that can be enjoyed on earth. Now, this is a man of prayer. This is a man who loved to spend time with God more than anything else in his life. He says this, Tonight I enjoyed a sweet hour alone with God in Ripton. I was lifted above the frowns and the flatteries of this lower world and had a sweet relish of heavenly joys. And my soul did, as it were, get into, in, into the eternal world and really taste of heaven. And when was the last time you prayed? I'm asking myself this, and you. When was the last time you prayed and you came away saying, God, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. There were times you read in here where Brainerd said, I prayed for however many hours, and at the end of it, I did not know how to stop. He wanted time with God. He was empowered by his time with God. The power of Brainerd's life was his love and enjoyment of God. That's what he longed for. And the question I have is, do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy God? Do you delight to sit in his presence, to hear his words ring from the pages of this blessed book, to commune with him as with the intimacy of a dear and trusted friend? If not, then perhaps your pursuit of holiness has lost its steam. And perhaps it has been crowded out by things of lesser value. Perhaps there are many lawful pleasures in your life that have just piled on top of each other so much that you just don't have room for God anymore. Brainerd had a heart to pursue holiness in order to fully extol and enjoy the glory of Christ. And yet I'm helped by the reality that at the same time he became increasingly aware of his own utter sinfulness. Even though he was throwing his life into the dangers of frontier ministry, on many occasions he found himself writing things like this. I am distressed to think that I should offer such dead, cold service to the living God. My soul seems to breathe after holiness, a life of constant devotedness to God, but I am ready to sink because I continually fall short and miss my desire. Oh, that the Lord would help, help me hold out yet a little while until that happy hour of deliverance comes. And many, many more passages in his journal. Brainerd's experience of being expelled from Yale College because of his sin and many other sins were used of God to reveal the futility of chasing after self-exaltation and preservation. God used Brainerd's own sin as the sharp, sanctifying instrument in his life to make him like Christ, to teach him humility. And I don't know about you. I know there's so many who would say, once you're forgiven of your sin, don't ever look back. Forget things that are behind. 
Yes, by all means. Forget them in the sense that they should not rule over you. But remember them in the sense that they should humble you. Don't ever forget what God saved you from. Paul never did. I can't think of one man in the Bible who forgot where he came from. Any godly man, that is. Brainerd, learn as all great men and women of faith must learn what Pastor Thomas Watson taught a hundred years before Brainerd came along. This is what Thomas Watson, Puritan pastor, says. He wrote, the humble Christian studies his own unworthiness. Oh, boy, if there's any statement that smacks that modern-day self-esteem psychology. Study your own unworthiness. And if I had decided to do Charles Simeon today rather than David Brainerd, Simeon would say, that's the secret. Look at your own sinfulness and let it drive you to Christ. Watson said, a humble Christian studies his own unworthiness. Watch this. He looks with one eye upon grace to see, uh, to keep his heart cheerful, and with the other eye, he keeps an eye on his sin to keep his heart humble. One eye looks at grace to stay encouraged. One eye looks at his sin to keep humbled. And then, then he makes this statement. He says, better is the sin that humbles you than the duty that makes you proud. And I know, I look at the sins of the past in my life and what a wretch I was and realize on the one hand it could have been much worse but it was oh so wicked. God, help me never forget. Help me never forget what I'm capable of and point me to the cross. Drag me to the cross. Lead me to the cross. Bring me to the glory of my blessed Savior who delivered me from all of that. How God hates a proud heart, but oh, how he delights in those who pursue humble holiness. And this is what Brainerd did. The pursuit of holiness in the joy of Christ. Secondly, he had a resolve to endure hardship for the gospel. To endure hardship for the gospel. Throughout the history of the church, it has been Consistently true that to the degree a person values and treasures knowing Christ, to that degree he will be eager to share it with others. And to the degree that he shares it with others, to that degree he will face persecution and personal suffering. And the Apostle Paul knew of this. Turn just a, just a dozen or so pages back to the left to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And here's what Paul says about his life. How would you like to have this life? I'd be afraid to go out in the morning. He says, verse 25, 24, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. They didn't like him. Three times I was beaten with rods. Those people didn't like him. Once I was stoned. Uh, those people really didn't like him. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. That had to be frightening. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers. Dangers from robbers, 
dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst without food, in cold and exposure. And then apart from all of these external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? And who is led into sin without my intense, intense, intense concern? Paul did not have an easy life. And one of the things I think that draws us to these Christian biographies is they become our heroes because of what they face and conquered by the grace of God. They brought the word of God to bear on their own lives and they overcame the difficulty they faced. And some of them lost their lives in the process. Brainerd knew such suffering. His first year at Yale College, David fell victim to the ravages of tuberculosis. So let's go back in the story. Recently after starting Yale, he's a young man, very young, in his, his early 20s. He contracts tuberculosis. He carried that disease with him into the frozen wilderness of New England, where he often complained of coughing up blood and of being so weak he was under, unable to sit up for days at a time. I mean, for a 20-year-old? Monday, April 30th, he writes, rode my horse several hours in the rain through the howling wilderness. There's that term I was looking for. The howling wilderness. Although I was so disordered in body that little or nothing but blood came from me. Tuberculosis. Thursday, November 22nd. I came on my way to the Delaware River. I was very much disordered with a cold and pain in my head. Probably had a sinus infection. And in those days, nothing to do about it. And you're, and you're out in the cold. That's the worst. About six at night, I lost my way in the wilderness and wandered over rocks and mountains down hideous steeps through swamps and the most dreadful, dangerous places. The night became so dark that few stars could be seen, and I was greatly exposed. I was much pinched with cold and distressed with the extreme pain in my head, attended with sickness in my stomach, so that every step I took was distressing to me. I had little hope for several hours together, but that I must lie in the wood all night in this distressed case. But... About nine o'clock, I found a house, and through the abundant goodness of God, was kindly entertained. Thus, I have frequently been exposed and sometimes laid out the whole night, but God has hitherto preserved me. Blessed be his name. And then he evaluates his suffering with this sentence. Such fatigues and hardships as these Serve to what? Think about your hardships. They are doing what to you? Are they making you bitter? Such fatigues and hardships as these serve to wean me more from the earth, and I trust will make heaven all the sweeter. You see why I read biography? This is good. It's so challenging to me. You read more. I mean, there were times when he was crossing an icy river 
He fell through and was drenched, almost died of exposure. His horse stepped into a rocky area and, and broke his leg. He spent all night with his horse and concluded that the only option was to kill it, which he did. He'd live among the Indians. They would bring him into one of their big uh, communal houses, and uh, it was cold outside, but um, uh, there he was. He had a little bed area inside, and with his tuberculosis, it's hard to breathe anyway, and they didn't have a potbelly stove. I mean, Ben Franklin hadn't invented that yet, and uh, so there was a fire, and the smoke filled the house, and so he felt like he was going to die if he stayed in the house. He would step out to get fresh air, and it was so cold, he thought he was going to die out in the cold. He suffered from depression. Jonathan Edwards recorded that, in his opinion, David Brainerd suffered from what was commonly known then as melancholy or depression. And indeed, Brainerd's journal is replete with entries that support this assumption. He says this, Lord's Day, September 16th, was so overwhelmed with depression that I knew not how to live. I longed for death exceedingly. My soul was sunk into deep waters and the floods were ready to drown me. I was so much oppressed that my soul was in a kind of horror. I could not keep my thoughts fixed in prayer for the space of one minute without fluttering and distraction. It made me exceedingly ashamed that I did not live to God. And those of us who've never really suffered severe depression perhaps cannot understand the darkness that days like this can bring. But many have found, and the reason I say this, didn't have to share this part of his life with you, but this just the cold reality of life in the sinful world, especially a guy who's suffering as much as he is. And other men like Charles Spurgeon who suffered much from depression. But David Brainerd and these other men wrestled intensely with their depression, and you know how they coped with it? By viewing their depression as a temptation to distrust God. They viewed it as a call to worship something other than God. They viewed each of their temptation as a call to worship, and by resolving to press on for the glory of God, even in the midst of the darkness and discouragement. I mean, consider Spurgeon sitting at his table as a 21-year-old young man, weeping like a baby for reasons he didn't even know. There was so much pressure on his life. He was so gifted and in such demand. And there were days that it just came over him. He was so inadequate for the job God had called him to do. And here's Brainerd in the woods. He's coughing up blood. His, his horse is dead. He's fallen in a lake. He's got to sleep with Indians who don't want to hear him. And he's choking and freezing and I mean who wouldn't be depressed and yet here's the thing he never stopped pressing forward you know what kills you if you're depressed you know what kills you when you stop and you're left with your thoughts because your thoughts are not from God they're coming out of a wicked deceitful heart and part of the answer Part of the cure for depression is to do the next right thing. Whatever you know God wants you to do, do it in faith, trusting him. 
Often the hardships Brainerd faced were so intense and his body so weak that he had to preach to his Indians while laying in his bed. You, you see this? He's sick. In fact, in one place in his journal he says, you know, when I finally got diagnosed with, with tuberculosis, I, I finally felt a sense of relief. It finally occurred to me that maybe, maybe those times I had to lay down when I was preaching, maybe I wasn't being lazy. Yeah, tuberculosis. But he pressed on. He pressed on. He pressed on. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the eternal souls of his beloved Indians, he was willing to say with Paul, 2 Timothy 2.10, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are the chosen, and they also that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. And to obey the Apostle Paul's charge to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.5, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Brainerd said this, Oh, the closest walk with God is the sweetest heaven that can be enjoyed on earth. And here, I love this, and my wife and I have referred back to this so many, many times. Here he's writing about his suffering, and he writes this. In the midst of all of this, I greatly feared, yes, I greatly feared lest through stupidity or carelessness I should lose the benefit of these trials. Oh, that they might be sanctified to my soul. Next time you feel yourself struggling, or the finances aren't coming in, or you're at odds with the person you love the most, or you fail a test in school, or whatever, remind yourself, God, I pray, don't let me, through my own stupidity or carelessness, miss the benefit that you have for me now in this trial. What's that based on? We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And what's the good? to conform us to the image of his son. Don't miss the benefit. Don't miss the benefit. If you are suffering, whether it's from depression or from disease or from a a relationship that's just killing you, don't miss the benefit. As I said earlier, David Brainerd was a dear friend of Jonathan Edwards, fell in love with his daughter, Jerusha, and they were very, very close Edwards warned Jerusha. He said, Dear Jerusha, if um, uh, Brainerd said this, if I thought I should not see you and be happy with you in another world, I could not bear to part with you, but we shall spend a happy eternity together. One time Edwards told Jerusha, Dear child, it means death if you nurse David, to which she replied, Father, my place is with David, come what may. One biographer writes, The chariots of the Lord came for David Brainerd at dawn on Friday morning, October 9th, 1747. He was 29 years old. Four months later, later, the chariots returned, this time for his beloved Jerusha, who had contracted the disease while serving him selflessly. Both lives were vibrant examples of Jesus' words in John 15, 13. Greater love is no man than this. The one laid down his life for his friends. Now, one more thing. 
And that is Brainerd's passion to exalt, extol the glory of God. Um, how do we become like this? What was the secret? What motivated this man to give up everything in service to the heathen Indians, as they called them, for the most part? And wanted, they really wanted nothing to do with him. And yet he took the gospel anyway. And here's the answer. His heart, soul, mind, and strength were resolutely fixed on the glory of God. Brainerd knew that the greatest good, the highest delight, the ultimate joy comes not by seeking the things of earth, but by proclaiming and upholding the glory of God in whom these blessed gifts will be found, not here, but there, with the Lord. And one last scripture for us this morning, and that is 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, listen to this. This is Peter writing to suffering saints, and he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the, word, by the way, the word here, blessed, means happy. Happy is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of, of the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you may have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being made being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's not the praise and glory and honor of Jesus. That's the praise and glory and honor of the saint who God glorifies. There's our hope. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And so you know what Peter is doing? He's saying, don't live for now. If, you, if you're going to live for now, you're going to be unfaithful. If you live for Christ, live for eternity, live for the resurrection, put yourself in your sanctified imagination at the resurrection, standing before the throne of Christ, looking back on your life, what would you be wanting to do right now? And, and what, would, what would you at that moment wish you would stop doing? And then do that. You know what motivated David Brainerd to deny himself? He firmly believed he wasn't denying himself at all. He was pursuing his joy, his happiness. He was indulging in the highest of joys and the greatest of happinesses. These precious treasures don't come to us served on a silver platter in the comfort of our padded pews. They come as we step out and take risks for the glory of God. Why was Jesus willing to face the cross John 12, 27 and 28 says it was for the glory of the Father. Why was Jesus willing to face the cross? Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him. 
Why was Brainerd willing to give his life completely? Here is his phrase, oh, how I desire to, spe- be, to spend and be spent for God. Friday, April 30th, nothing grieves me so much as the fact that I cannot live constantly to God's glory. I could bear any depression or spiritual conflict if I could but have my heart all the while burning within me with love for God and desire for his glory. Friday, October 26th, I long for holiness more to please God than I did for my own happiness sake. Yet, this was my greatest happiness, never more to dishonor, but always to glorify the blessed God. And of heaven, he said, and this is where I got the title for this message, my heaven is to please God and glorify him and to give all to him, and to be wholly devoted to him. That is the heaven I long for. This is my religion, and that is my happiness, and ever was, ever since I suppose I had true religion. I do not go to heaven to be advanced, but to give honor to God. It is impossible for any creature, any rational creature, to be happy without acting all for God. God himself could not make him happy any other way. Oh, my friends, we have so much to learn from faithful men as they read the word, study the word, and apply the word and make hard choices for their joy. And David Brainerd is one of my favorites. He often struggled to pray. He often sinned. He was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted but he had a personal vision for knowing and serving the Lord Jesus that should inspire us to love him and seek him and serve him more than we have ever done. It's amazing. It's amazing how God has used this little book. The story of David Brainerd was released by Jonathan Edwards. It's never been out of print in all of these years, 200 and almost 70 years. The impact of God's word through this man has been fueling the missions movement of the last two centuries, as its impact has reverberated in the lives of a veritable host of other great men of God, like, here's a, here's a partial list, John Wesley, Francis Osbury, Thomas Koch, William Carey, Robert Morrison, Samuel Mills, Frederick Schwartz, Robert McShane, David Livingston, Andrew Murray, Henry Martin, and a few days before he was martyred for his attempt to take the good news to the Alka Indians in South America, 1956, Jim Elliot. But more importantly, God desire, God's desire is to change your life, to change my life, to fill us with a passion and love for Christ and to send us out on a lifetime of spiritual adventure in ministry and suffering that will bring God great glory and will bring you unspeakable joy. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, and we see men like this, and we hear the scriptures sometimes, and we just can't imagine what you're calling us to until we say it played out in the life of a man. And I praise you. I praise you because it, it reveals my deficiencies And it shows me how much growing I need to do. Oh, God, forgive us for our pride. 
Forgive us for thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And return us, Father, to the basics, the fundamentals of loving Christ, worshiping him, fellowshipping with him, enjoying him, rejoicing in him, knowing fresh forgiveness from him, and then serving him with all of our heart and loving him with all of our soul and all our mind and all of our strength. Be glorified, Father, as we renew at the beginning of this new year our resolve to live for Christ, to spend and be spent for his great name. For we pray it in Jesus' name.